1: Fiametta Rocco and I'm the books and arts editor of The Economist. With me today in our London studio is Oliver Morton, The Economist's former science editor who's now in charge of briefings. Joining us from San Francisco are two authors of a new novel called Ghost Fleet which Oliver reviewed in The Economist earlier this month. P.W. Singer is a strategist at New America and August Cole a former defence industry reporter with The Wall Street Journal, is now a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, focusing on using fiction to explore the future of war. Ghost Fleet is written in the vein of Tom Clancy. It's a futuristic novel about World War III that asks, what if the Cold War turned hot? In the book, China invades Hawaii and the Americans who remain at large after the invasion turn into guerrilla warriors, a kind of Mujahideen on surfboards. Ghost Fleet follows a huge global cast of characters, fighting at sea, on land, in the air, and in two new places of conflict, outer space and cyberspace. Gentlemen, good morning.
0: Thanks for having us. Good morning.
1: This is such a wild book. I mean, it's a real page-turner, so I'm afraid our discussion is going to have to include some spoilers. Peter, let me start with you. Where did you get your ideas?
0: We pull our ideas from any number of sources. The book is a smash-up of a techno-thriller, but it's also taking every single technology trend and it is drawn from the real world. So the inspiration might be anything from hardcore research, pulling out a DARPA contract announcement of a certain weapon system they're working on and playing that forward. Or August, for example, when he was at the Wall Street Journal, broke a story about the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter program being hacked. So then we say, okay... What are the ramifications of that? Other times it might be from human interactions. We met with people that ranged from the obvious folks who would fight in World War III, U.S. Navy destroyer captains, fighter pilots, Chinese generals. And then other times from the not so obvious, but people that we thought would play a role, Silicon Valley venture capitalists, anonymous hackers, whatnot.
1: Wow, that's quite something. Well, while you're there, let's go even further. There's lots and lots of far out stuff in this book that you have dredged, obviously, as you say, from real world extrapolation, speculation, research. Did you read about any ideas you thought were as realistic as those you ended up using, but so outrageous you thought the reader would reject them?
2: This is August here. You know, many of the the, the ideas that we drew upon in the book were anchored in the reality that we know today with the idea that we're able to give our readers a familiar touch point so that when we really blow their minds uh, by creating a technology uh, utilization or a environment in the future, like an occupied Hawaii, that they trust us. You know, many of the, the details that we employ are really important for that reason. You know, there is a level of uh, credibility and trust that go hand in hand in this sort of world building. And we found that the farther we ranged into the future, the farther we took uh, assumptions that are closely held in the military or in Washington today and turn them upside down the the more we really wanted
0: to make that a believable upending of uh, of uh, of our readers world one of the strange things as well is how there are certain aspects that we accept in the real world that frankly don't make sense to a non-policy reader. So our editor is a literary editor. He's not from the the, the wonk world, so to speak. And there's aspects of our current weapon systems that we accept today. Uh, for example, every single major defense program for both the US and the UK, we know their own tester found that there are, and there were significant vulnerabilities when it comes to cybersecurity. We know that, and yet we accept it. Or another would be the Joint Strike Fighter, the F 35 program, we're spending more than one trillion dollars on this weapon system where the bomb doesn't even fit in the bomb bay door. So this is the kind of strange thing that almost, you know, pushes it. We didn't even want to get into these kind of crazy details that are accepted as just, oh, that's just the way we do things. We'll spend a trillion dollars on a program that, you know, has these fundamental flaws. Well, so what?
1: Ollie, let me bring you in here because future war. Is such a well-trodden path in thrillers, and I know you love reading this stuff.
3: Yeah, I was really interested uh, what your personal favourites of the the previous classics of the canon were, because you know this is this is a sort of literature that, unlike most sorts of literature, has a very definite beginning in the eighteen seventies with George Chesney's Battle of Dorking, and has been very well rehearsed ever since. Were there any particular examples of wars foretold that you were looking back to? And uh, a similar sort of question is. Most of the people who tell stories about wars foretold have a fairly specific agenda. They want to push on the people who should be thinking about that and what's the what's the core of your agenda that you're putting across
2: Well, this is August. I think one of the the books that both Pete and I had read when we were younger was a Tom Clancy title Red Storm Rising and in America, that was a very formative uh reading experience because he had envisioned a third world war taking place in europe the the book, though, that doesn't often get as much attention among uh, some of the current generation of readers is Sir John Hackett's *The Third World War*, which is an incredibly uh, painstakingly detailed fictional accounting of a uh, of a confrontation between the West and the Soviet Union. That book is a really, really powerful uh, reminder of how fiction can. Impact policymakers because it's credible, it's imaginative, and it's a very good read. I think that uh, sort of trifecta is incredibly important. In our case, one of our goals was to talk about, as Pete mentioned, some of the assumptions that people no longer challenge, uh, problems that are you know too big to tackle, and show, not just tell, but show why they must be addressed seriously.
0: This is Peter. One of the other ones that is a favorite of mine is a little bit further back is Arthur Conan Doyle's story Danger, where you can use fiction not just to identify potential future worlds that lie ahead of you, but you can also warn of... The danger that lies ahead. And for him, it was written in uh, early 1914, warning that this once science fiction technology of submarines, you know, very recently, Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, now we have them, that they presented a danger to Great Britain that wasn't being woven into everything from public understanding to battle plans. Now, what's fascinating about it is you go back then, and the British Admiralty made fun of Arthur Conan Doyle for this outlandish idea that submarines could be used in a way that mattered seriously in war and in particular could be used to carry out a civilian blockade of Great Britain. And, uh, you know, it it's a great illustration of the power of fiction to flesh out, uh, a, to warn of what lies ahead. Ours is a book that comes with over 400 endnotes, so every single technology trend, even some of the quotes that characters say, are documented in the real world. So our hope, and and at least what's played out so far, is that it's a book that's an entertaining read for people, but it's also being utilized in everything from debates inside the Pentagon on strategy to inspiration for certain um, technologies that we're going to push to implement.
3: One of the tropes of all this sort of fiction, and you bring it up in your answer there, is uh, is the idea of a transfer of transformative technologies and uh, superweapons. And one of the things I really appreciate about the book is how the uh, the most important transformative technology, I guess on the american side the the rail gun, uh, which is a uh, like most of this a real technology, and in fact, you imagine the demonstration model being shipped over to the to the west coast for for real use you 're very realistic about the way that's actually integrated into a ship it's very difficult, things go wrong. The Chinese seem to me to get away very easily in that their transformative technologies work straight out of the box they have an anti-satellite system that's just perfect. They've got this wonderful new anti-submarine warfare system that's just perfect. Did you feel you were slightly loading the dice for the Chinese to make the drama better?
2: I think it's easy to... underestimate your adversary, particularly for the United States, which spends more on its military than uh, any other nation and will continue to do so until China reaches a a similar parity level, let's say, in 15 or 20 years. I think uh, the way we think about China's military prowess is somewhat backward-looking rather than forward-looking. And so it was important in Ghost Fleet to really... uh, Walk forward. Some of the technological development trends we're seeing there, Shipbuilding's is an example. You know, China is pursuing what's called a leap-ahead strategy, meaning that they're not incrementally developing naval warships, but they're actually going from one technological uh, level to another in large steps, far far greater than what you would uh, ordinarily expect in like a linear development process, or an aircraft where they're. Uh, almost out of the box you know, using stolen technology, but fielding stealthy fighters that will be um, essentially a match for US aircraft soon. So, to look at the way they can detect our submarines or the uh, way they're able to take out US space assets seemed like a really important way to sort of tell the reader, but also the policy
0: community, that we should not underestimate our adversaries. And one of the things that I would mention in this is that links back to the real world is in examining both sides' military planning in the real world. One of the problems right now is that both China and the U.S. have plans to fight each other, but their plans typically are – there's an assumption baked into them that both the war would go according to their own plan, and it would be things – the typical wording is short – Sharp. That is, it would be a quick, easy win for their side. And of course, both sides can't be right. And our fear is actually even worse. Both sides are wrong. But this thinking that it's easy will make war more likely.
3: Isn't there an old adage that wars come about when people have a legitimate disagreement about what the likely outcome is? It's, it's, I, and there's many parallels,
0: I worry, today in the period right before World War One, where it was both you had a broader population thinking, you know, war is unthinkable. It makes no sense for great powers to go to war. We have such trade with each other. Same parallels today. But then equally, you had each of the militaries basically looking at the situation and saying, not just would a war start and we would win, but we need to act quickly whenever there's a crisis so that we can seize the advantage. And you can see a lot of parallels in that thinking today. And it gets even worse when you move into new technologies, which we know we're going to use in war, but we're not certain what the impact of them. And, you know, back then it was things like the telegraph, machine gun, whatever. Today, it's things like cyber conflict where everybody thinks there's an inherent offensive advantage.
1: Gentlemen, I think that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. Thank you. That was P.W. Singer and August Cole talking to Oliver Morton and I about Ghost Fleet, their new thriller about the next world war. Ghostfleet is published in America by Horton Mifflin Harcourt, and an e-book comes out in the UK in August, published by Canelo. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?